Let us pray. So, Father, we do ask that you would help us to fully surrender all to Jesus, to his will, to his heart, to the priorities of his kingdom. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. So good to see all of you. And we had, um, first service, we had some technical difficulties, and you should have seen David. He was sitting at the keyboard with his guitar around his neck, leading from both simultaneously, and it was, it was rather impressive. <laughs> and our sound team did a wonderful job in troubleshooting, so um, and there's nothing to bring it to your attention. You know, we don't notice all the hard work that they do when things are going smoothly, but I just want to express appreciation to the whole tech team and sound folks. They do a great job, and they do so much behind the scenes that most of us aren't even aware of. Do I'll say this again at the announcement time, but I do want to remind everyone of our prayer time tonight at 6 p.m., our monthly time of prayer and worship. And I want to encourage everyone to make this a priority as we continue to um, seek God's face and pray for our community. I want, to, you, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, and you can also find a Bible under your pew if you don't have one, and turn to chapter 9 of St. Luke's Gospel, looking at our Gospel reading this morning. And as I begin, I want to give credit to Daryl Bach and his commentary, which I've leaned on quite a bit for this sermon. I use multiple commentaries anytime I prepare a sermon, but there are times, and I want to give credit and honor where credit is due. I'm not plagiarizing, but I, I think it's important, if, particularly if there's one or two commentaries that are particularly relevant to what I'm preaching on and the Lord leads me to, that I give credit to those authors. So I want to give credit to Daryl Bach this morning. Again, looking at our reading from St. Luke's Gospel, this reading is, contains some of the hard sayings of Jesus things that are unsettling, things that will cause us to ponder and reflect and are even rather convicting. At first glance, it may seem as we look at Luke 9, these verses, that this reading encompasses what should be two separate readings. First, we have the Samaritan village rejecting Jesus in verses 51 through 56. Second, the cost of following Jesus in verses 57 through 62. And while these are indeed two separate events, separated by perhaps by a few days or even possibly by weeks, in reality, they are very closely related. And we'll look at each of these sections in some detail in just a moment. In verses 51 through 56, in the midst of Samaritan rejection, Jesus demonstrates to his disciples, both in that day and to his disciples in our day, what steadfast, unwavering obedience to the will and call of God looks like. Second, in verses 57 through 62, we see the ramifications of this call and all that it entails for anyone who would become a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So what we see beginning in verses 51 through 56 is Jesus' his, Jesus example of what determined obedience looks like. Luke 9:51 inaugurates a new phase in Jesus' ministry. His time of ministry in Galilee is concluding, and he is now moving toward his ultimate destination, Jerusalem. Look at verse 51 with me. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now this imagery of setting one's face towards something is not new with the New Testament. It was often used in the Old Testament, especially in the context of setting of the ministry of God's Old Testament prophets. Two examples. First, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And then in Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel. To set one's face indicates resolute, unwavering determination, steady movement in one direction. Um, Some of you know I used to do quite a bit of hunting. I haven't done any since I moved down to northern Virginia. Um, But especially in my younger years, there wasn't much weather-wise that would stop me from going out. And looking back, I've thought back a few times, what was I doing out there? (laughs) Tammy, Tammy, even in our early days of our marriage, used to shake her head when I would leave in a sleet storm to drive an hour and a half to the eastern shore of Maryland to goose hunt because, as we used to say, the snottier the weather, the better the goose hunting. Um, But... I can remember times when I had to get from point A to point B in the woods or that sort of thing, and it would be sleeting or snowing, and you had, you've got to get to your goal. You can't turn around and just go like this and walk backwards. You've got to face into all that that inclement weather and all that sleet hitting you in the face to get from point A to point B. And in a much more profound and significant way, that's what Jesus does here. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. He's determined to head there. Nothing will keep him from this act of obedience. And Jesus does this knowing full well the fate that awaits him in Jerusalem. The setting for today's reading is as Jesus and his disciples pass through Samaria on the path moving toward Jerusalem from Galilee. And the fact that they pass through Samaria in itself is remarkable. While the most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem was through Samaria, typically observant Jews took a more circuitous route around the region of Samaria, which added significantly to the length of their journey. Samarians were considered, excuse me, yeah, Samaritans were considered unclean. Jews and Samaritans despised each other. And in Samaria too, the people reject Jesus. The response of James and John is to want to call down fire and judgment to consume this Samaritan village. It's important to note that James and John were among the youngest of Jesus' disciples. And some of this can be chalked up to youthful zeal. They were impetuous, youthful, full of godly zeal. However, judgment is not fitting in keeping and in keeping with Jesus' ministry in that moment. Jesus clearly warns of judgment that will ultimately come to those who reject him. But the time for that is not now. It wasn't in that moment. And what is indeed illustrated here is that Christ's gospel extends to all peoples, Gentiles, Samaritans, Jews alike. 
And that there will also be among all peoples, not just among the Jews, those who will reject the salvation which God alone gives through Jesus Christ. Just as the gospel of salvation extends to all, so the rejection of it is also widespread. And again, the most important point of focus here is Jesus' determined obedience to go to Jerusalem and to knowingly go into all that awaits him in that city. And Jesus is to us the perfect example and picture of what unwavering obedience to God's will looks like. Just as Jesus has given us the perfect example of determined obedience, he also issues the call to this kind of obedience to anyone who would truly be his disciple. In verses 57 through 62 of Luke 9, Jesus' interaction with three prospective disciples, as I would call them, prospective disciples, is recorded. And each of these interactions gives us godly insight into the nature of, of the call to genuine discipleship. And I'll be upfront. None of this that we're looking at here is going to tickle our ears. As Daryl Bach says, the individuals who convene with Jesus are not a focal point in the account, for there is no indication of their response. The point resides solely in Jesus' responses, which are given for the reader's reflection, which are given for our reflection. And Jesus' responses here should give you and me pause. They should cause us to reflect on and assess our own lives. In each of these three encounters, Jesus gives us insight into the calling which being his true disciple requires. The first of these that we see is the call to rejection. Look at verses 57 through 58 with me. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As Daryl Bach notes, students of Judaism typically lived with their teachers, with their rabbi, in order to study and learn Torah from him. But what Jesus offers here is a much more compelling and markedly more dangerous course. You see, it wasn't simply about living with Jesus. It wasn't just about sitting at his feet and learning. Far from it. Think about it. Jesus himself didn't even have a permanent home. Have you ever thought about the fact that other than maybe for a few years in his later childhood and early adolescence, our Lord never had a home to permanently call his own? He was born in a stable. They fled to Egypt as as refugees. Yes, they returned to Nazareth and Galilee. But then during his earthly ministry, he had no place to lay his head no permanent place to call home. To follow after Jesus as a disciple meant and still means a willingness. Did you hear that? A willingness to lay aside both the comforts and approval of this world. A ready willingness to suffer 
and to experience rejection. Now that's quite a sales pitch. That will really sell on our world. But hear me, tragically, far too often, we see the call to Christian discipleship framed as something quite different. Even the complete opposite of this, the complete opposite of what Jesus himself said. In Romans 12, 2, St. Paul admonishes us not to be conformed to this world. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 4 through 15, 14 through 15, Jesus prays this for his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What we see here in Luke 9, what St. Paul says, what we read Jesus praying in John 17, all of this is consistent with the whole counsel of Jesus' teachings during his earthly ministry. Think about the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. And all of this, all of this raises some troubling and provoking thoughts, I think, for you and me. Because it seems that far too much of the focus and energy of the church in the Western world, especially in this country, is in many quarters focused on that which is completely contrary to what Jesus calls his disciples to. To the point that much of what we see modeled and hear taught is a completely false or at the very best, a deeply corrupted gospel. All around us, we see Christians focused on, even obsessed with the things of this world. Yes, I'm talking about money, financial, and material prosperity, but that is only part of it. Don't lock on to that, because that is only part. And please hear me, because some of the things I'm about to say are hard things. There's also in many churches in many church circles, what seems to be an insatiable lust and pursuit of temporal earthly power. Whether that be in business, entertainment, politics, you name the earthly temporal realm. And what we have to a large degree is a church that has lost its bearings. Bearings which must be thoroughly biblical, not just biblically based where we take some little portion of Scripture and run with it and create our own structures, but thoroughly biblical, true to God's Word, and Jesus-centered. And don't be confused. I, I don't like labels, but I don't know how else to frame this. Don't be confused because I'm not just talking about so-called progressive or liberal churches. A huge sector of the church of Jesus Christ has equated temporal power, perceived influence, success, and I use that term very loosely, worldly success with the advance of Christ's kingdom and the progress of the gospel. And none of us is immune to this. And yet equating progress in the gospel the advance of Christ's kingdom with these things couldn't be farther from the reality of Christ. We try to exchange 
earthly security for the true security that is only found in Jesus. In the lust for temporal, worldly power, prominence, and influence, we find a church to a large degree devoid of the true power of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. Some folks who have bought into this way of thinking may indeed give God's power lip service or a winking nod. But the reality, brothers and sisters, is that we in too many cases have sold the true power of Christ in exchange for the empty power of this world's systems. And yet we pat ourselves on the back and boast of our influence and our prestige and how far we've come. And the fact is, false, hollow, worldly power is intoxicating if we don't guard our hearts. It is Satan's ploy to draw us away and blind us to the true nature of the gospel and the priorities of Christ and his eternal kingdom. And far too much of the church, especially in this land, is rife with this. We're filled with pride based on some false carnal assessment of influence or success. And it's gained nothing for us but an emaciated, milk-fed church that has lost sight of Jesus' true call to discipleship and that our lives must be focused on Christ and the transforming power of his gospel in people's lives. Even when that means rejection by the world around us. I remember a number of years ago, and I'm not talking about the movie The Passion of the Christ. Let me just be clear so your minds don't run there. Um, a Christian ministry, we're going back 20 or 25 years here. I know that's ancient history for some of you. Um, making a movie that was intended to be shown to a secular audience in movie theaters and all this. And the reality is, even though it was produced and was introduced in theaters, it really didn't happen much. And frankly, they squandered huge amounts of money and financial resources, and the movie was a total flop. And, but I remember the leader of that ministry seeing an interview on television saying, this is going to give us a seat at the table with Hollywood. And in all humility, I don't mean this arrogantly, I remember even at that time thinking, should we have a seat at that table? And why would we want a seat at that table anyway? And it's completely contrary to the gospel. It's completely contrary to what Jesus says. Jesus flat out says that sort of thing's not going to happen for my true disciples. And why would we want a seat at that table, we as God's people are invited to the most glorious eternal table in heaven, Christ's eternal banqueting table. Why would we want to seat at that table when Christ every Sunday calls us to his table to encounter his presence, to receive the body and blood of our Lord and be nourished supernaturally by him? I think of our brothers and sisters in the two-thirds world, and not that they get everything perfect, but we have so much to learn from them about what true disciple, what costly discipleship looks like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writing on the Beatitudes says this, 
Every additional beatitude deepens the breach between the disciples of the people. The disciples' call becomes more and more visible. Those who mourn are those who are prepared to renounce and live without everything the world calls happiness and peace. There are those who cannot be brought into accord with the world, who cannot conform to the world. They mourn over the world, its guilt, its fate, and its happiness. The world celebrates and they stand apart. The world shrieks, enjoy life, and they grieve. They see that the ship on which, they are festive, on which there are festive cheers and celebrating is already leaking. And while the world imagines progress, strength, and a grand future, the disciples know about the end, judgment, and the arrival of the kingdom of heaven for which the world is not at all ready. Jesus' call to true discipleship means rejection by this world because of Christ. Because of Christ, not because we're being jerks, but because of fidelity to Christ. And it means our rejection of the things and the ways of this world. Secondly, we have the call to singular focus in verses 59 through 60. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now to be clear here, Jesus is not advocating the lack of care for or the dishonor of parents. I've actually heard people say that Jesus tells people here to violate one of the Ten Commandments. That is absolutely false. But what he says here is in part hyperbole. Jesus' purpose here is to demonstrate the extent of commitment which discipleship requires, even demands. And the fact is this prospective disciple was grasping for excuses to postpone his obedience. He was trying to kick the can down the road. The fact is, any of us, including me first, can always find an excuse. We can always find a reason to postpone something. In 2018, Gene Marks wrote in the Washington Post an article about the craziest late-to-work excuses. And those of you that work in HR will especially appreciate this. Excuses for being late to work are essentially the same in every industry, according to a career builder survey of more than 1,000 HR managers. The most common reasons for employee tardiness are pretty familiar. With traffic, 51%, oversleeping, 31%, and weather, 28%, topping a manager's list. But among the most unique excuses bosses have heard, and these are all true, I was here, but I fell asleep in the parking lot. My fake eyelashes stuck together. An astrologer warned me of a car accident on a major highway, so I took all the back roads. And another that raised eyebrows, I had morning sickness, and that was from a male employee. <laughs> and the article concluded by noting one thing is for sure. Innovation is not dead in America. That's humorous. I wanted to lighten things up a little bit, but the reality is... We can all find excuses. We can all kick the can down the road, just like this prospective disciple in Scripture. 
As Daryl Bach says, many a would-be follower of Jesus has pleaded the requirements of social obligation or prior business demands as an excuse for not meeting the imperative of obedience. Jesus rejects such excuses. I will get serious about Jesus after you name it. I will get more involved in church when I will start tithing once. I will spend more time with God and the priorities of God's kingdom after the point which you fill in the blank. And I want to speak to our our youth and young adults with this. You know, you guys are in such a good place because this is your opportunity to set those priorities and to seek God's will and his call in your life and set their trajectory now before all this baggage and stuff that clings to us as we go through life if we're not careful starts pulling you away from the heart and the call of God. Now is the time. Serve God now. Listen to God's call on your life, whatever that is now. And don't say, after I finish college, or after I get into my career, or after I get married, or after I have kids, because you know what? You'll turn around and find you're an old man or woman, and you're still kicking the can down the road. God says, serve him now with your whole heart, and he will bless and use you. The call of Jesus is paramount. It must be our first and singular focus. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then finally here we have the call to constant commitment, verses 61 through 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We cannot pursue two pathways going in opposite directions simultaneously. Brings back to mind the Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, which I concluded my sermon with last Sunday. But just like Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. We must keep following Jesus day by day, one step at a time. And this is not easy. It's often not easy. Jesus didn't say it would be easy. It's not easy for you. It's not easy for me. But it means not trying to hang on of old ways of doing and being. We get pulled and torn in half figuratively. It means a clean break. It means a fixed forward focus. The illustration Jesus here uses of plowing is something that the people on that day, particularly in the rocky soil in that region of Palestine, would have understood. If you were plowing with an ox or a mule or whatever the animal was in front of you in that rocky soil and you were trying to, to plow a straight furrow and you look back, the rock would quickly knock your plow off course and the furrows would become crooked and useless. Growing up in Maryland and on the Chesapeake Bay, my father and my grandfather always had boats. And I remember even as a boy when I was being taught how to navigate into um, 
drive a boat on the water, you learn very quickly, if I'm going across the bay and I want to get to that point, you, you can't look right in front of you because of the waves and the wind and the tide, and all those things bouncing you around. You end up way off course. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on that target on the horizon, on the distant shore. And if you start looking down and then you look back to see the wake of your boat, you'll realize you've been going all over the place. You've got to keep your eyes focused on that place on the shore. And in the same way, Jesus calls us to clear focus, to undivided loyalty, to follow him. He calls us to a life of discipleship. And to quote Daryl Bach one last time, discipleship is not an emotional decision of one moment, but a walk of life. And looking back, reaching back, trying to hold on to that which is behind us, it will knock you and me off course for sure. In this passage in Luke 9, Jesus is a realist. He does not sugarcoat the demands and realities of faithful discipleship and citizenship in his eternal kingdom. He makes it clear that discipleship and living this life is only possible through him and the power that he gives us to live a life of discipleship. And we are indeed works in progress. You're not going to get everything right. I don't get everything right. But we must have our eyes fixed on him. Not on the things of this world. Not the stuff of this world, which masquerades as something other than what it is. That offers us false life. That offers us worldly temporal power that offers us the praise of people in this world, that offers us the praise of people in the church who have been tethered to the things of this world and enthralled with the power that they think we have temporally when our power really is supposed to be in Christ and the cross and in the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls us to discipleship, radical discipleship, knowing that it will not make us popular, knowing that it entails rejection, knowing that it entails potential hardship. And he calls us to it to follow his example and to become more like him. Let us pray. Father, what Jesus says here is a hard word. And we begin by acknowledging that. The word whose truth is impossible to live apart from the transforming power of Jesus and your spirit in our lives. So Lord, I pray now, first of all, that you would bring us, all of us, Lord, to search our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, and search our hearts. And bring us to repentance, to turning more fully toward Jesus and away from the things of this world. And show us specific areas of our life, our lives together as a church family. 
Lord, forgive us for when we've made excuses or postponed fully and wholeheartedly following Jesus. Lord, forgive us when we've tried to hold on to the past and the old ways of doing things rather than making a clean break, the break that you empower us to, to live into and your call to holiness. Lord, forgive us as people, as the people of God, when we have somehow become enthralled or intoxicated with earthly temporal power or the lust for it. Forgive us. Forgive us when we've not yielded to your call on our lives, on the life of this church. Forgive us for when we've not availed ourselves of your limitless power to be transformed and to do the work of your kingdom. And we relied on ourselves or worldly strategies. And come Holy Spirit and fill us afresh with your presence, with your power, with the life of Jesus that our lives in this church would be set ablaze for you. And Lord, that we would follow you in true, radical, self-sacrificing discipleship in such a way that what you do in our midst and through us is so far beyond what we could ever imagine in the flesh that you alone receive all the glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.